The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Benjamin Pollard with an episode of Chatter for June 24th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross post this week's episode of Chatter, a podcast hosted by David Priest and Shane Harris that features in-depth discussions with fascinating people at the creative edges of national security. Today's Chatter episode is entitled Misremembering Watergate and January 6th with Tim Naftali. In the episode, Harris sat down with Naftali to discuss the legacy of Watergate in light of the January 6th Capitol attack. This is Chatter. This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, historian Tim Naftali on misremembering Watergate and January 6th. Richard Nixon never apologized for his abuses of power. Never. What he apologized for was dragging everybody through his mismanagement of a criminal conspiracy. Our political culture will permit a president to completely stonewall an impeachment. Richard Nixon didn't think that was possible. Donald Trump tested the theory and it turned out to be true. What Watergate showed was how fragile our institutions are and that an even smarter, more malicious president could have wreaked havoc. Tim Naftali, welcome to Chatter. It is lovely to see you here. It's a delight um, to be here and uh, to talk to you especially, Shane. Well, thank you. Thank you. I wish we could do this in person, but you are you're there in New York and I'm here in D.C. You're surrounded by hundreds of books, I'm sure half of which you have written. <laughs> no, the question is how many of them have I read? <laughs> you don't have to say that. They answer. have many colorful, they have many, many colorful um, covers. And so it makes a nice backdrop. That is, it's a very, it's a very this way, I am familiar with most of them. Okay. Well, that's good. That's a start for most people. I, I am ashamed to admit how many books in my bookshelf I have not read, uh, but I am trying to remedy that slowly as time, as time goes on. Uh, I, of course, have read your wonderful books and all the things that you write. Uh, and you write, you write all over the place. You, where are you mostly writing these days? I, you, we're going to talk about your great piece in The Atlantic, but like, where do you hang your hat as a writer these days if you had to think of a place? Um, I, I wouldn't think of it in that way. Okay. Um, because uh, 
I'm motivated to write by, by whatever issue or story I want to tell. Mm-hmm. As a historian, I generally want to tell stories, factual stories. I want yeah. to tell stories. <laughs> if I know something that I think is really neat, cool, and connects to a broader issue, I want to tell that story. Right. And, and one, of the, uh, one of the cool things about being a historian you know, with a lot of curiosity is that you store up stories and they're not completed, you know, but you've got them in the, in the mental database. Mm-hmm. And then either you come across some more data that completes the story or something's happening around you. And it is absolutely clear that that those three or four pieces of a mosaic matter now, and then you fit them into some broader pattern. And then there are, are issues that we all have as citizens that you just see something and you want to write about it. So um, I have um, I've never quite understood this term, but it, it means a lot uh, to many people. So I'll use the word wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've never been a mechanic in my life. I, I'm not the kind of person who can actually fix anything. But I guess my wheelhouses um, would include um, presidential history, mm-hmm. uh, presidential history and uh, international relations history especially the history of the secret world and the role that information and covert action has played in shaping the international system. Um, but I've been, I'm also, I also write about, um, you know, domestic matters. Um, you know, when you say presidential history, it's, it's not just what the president and the first lady are doing in the white house. It has a lot to do with the nature of the article two institution executive and how it fits in with the other two. So, so I find myself writing about a lot of different things um, because I'm moved to do it. And and I, I'm lucky and I, I feel very blessed in this regard that I, I, I've managed to create a career for myself where I do have the space to write about practically anything. And it doesn't mean I always have an audience for it, but I, I feel good and complete when I do at least com- finish the idea that I wanted to share. And you've always struck me, you know, we've known each other since I think we must have met in 2004, 2005. Yeah. Well, we, well, we can talk about that in a second because we, we, we were introduced by John Boindexter, I think is how the story goes. Yes. Um, but you've always struck me as a historian who also brings a journalist's sense of kind of immediacy and trying to make marshalling history to make the present relevant and to explain why things to maybe are unfolding the way they are. I mean, you have a really good sense of timing uh, and have always enjoyed writing as well in the moment, as well as writing retrospectively. Well, I, 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 I have a low boredom threshold and, um, <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's a, there's the Isaiah Berlin wrote about hedgehogs and foxes and mm-hmm. some, some uh, scholars focus on one thing. And that's what they do. And other scholars are just around. They're all over the map and they are, um, I'm that scholar. I, I would, um, to me, uh, with few exceptions, deep dive equals boredom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I am comfortable moving from topic to topic as the world around me changes. And, um, one of the things that I, I learned in graduate school um, was that uh, was that you always have to be careful about um, 
nominating parallels for where we are today, saying this is just like X, because actually it's never just like X. <laughs> First of all, the players are usually different because X usually happened about a generation ago. And the circumstances around it are, have changed. And I suspect we'll be talking about, you know, January 6th versus Watergate. Yeah. But, but um, it's pedantic and therefore boring to say it's completely different and we can learn nothing from it. So there's mm -hmm. got to be a middle road where something that happened 30 years ago involving different players, but similar concerns, questions, consequences, shed some light on today. And usually it's by comparison. So it doesn't give you a roadmap for what to do, but it gives you a sense of the rope. And I love doing that. I think that's a, that is a, a way where my training and my, my curiosity can be useful to people making big decisions or even small decisions today. So relevant, because I know a lot of my colleagues get really nervous when you say relevant because it means, well, basic research has no point unless it can be applied. Mm. I think it is absolutely inevitable that the basic research you do on the past will have some applications today. Um, if we're talking about the same country, I mean, if you're doing basic research about Rome, <laughs> um, you know, okay, I think it's a bit of, it could be a bit of a stretch. But if you're doing another era in, in American history, you'll, you will find points of intersection. And at the very least, you'll give people a context to understand how the heck we got to where we are now. Right. And we'll get to we'll, we'll talk about Watergate uh, shortly here, too, because it's the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break in. Um, but first, just just to back up even a little bit, um, just talk a little bit about where you grew up and what drew you to history or even what drew you to writing and telling stories. Well, I grew up in Montreal and um, I was politicized um, uh, in the language debates uh, of the I mean, I was a kid but in the 1970s. Um, and uh, although I will say that my, my family did watch the Senate Watergate hearing. So as a, as a kid, I, I watched Ehrlichman and Haldeman and right. <laughs> had no idea that later part of my life would be shaped by the misdeeds of those gentlemen. But, right. but, but really the, the principal um, political events of, of my childhood had to do with language and, and, um, I was part of uh, an English-speaking minority in the province of Quebec. Um, I went and learned French. Um, uh, but, th but those issues, which seem very far away and probably uh, rather small to some of your listeners, or maybe all of them, those taught me a lot about power and community and top-down change. Mm-hmm. And, and left me with a skepticism about um, powerful governments. Um, I, um, I saw in Quebec a government come to power with, with an ideology that sought to engage in, in, social, in, a, social, in a laboratory experiment, um, forcing social change on people. And um, I, you know, I was extremely young at the time. And so I was able um, 
to react pretty well because I could learn a second language, uh, you know, reasonably easily. Yeah, it's easier when but you're I, a kid. But yeah. I was looking at, you know, people my mother, my parents' age and older, and to have a government force them to speak a different language. Um, Talking a lot about how um, how ideologues can ruin communities. So it, it's funny. I mean, I uh, the Cold War was a very ideological time, but but where I learned about um, where I, I developed a skepticism about about um, about top down change mm. was actually viewing what the Parti Québécois did in in Quebec, and I. I, I became, you know, in, in high school, uh, an advocate for uh, free speech um, and for finding a way not to force people um, to change, but to find a, find a sort of a, a, a middle road. So you'd have room for, for obviously both languages, but also uh, in the province of Quebec, the English minority would not lose all of its language rights. And that made me very interested in, in a career in, in government um, in Canada, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, defending free speech. And what Americans, what we Americans, I'm an American citizen now, um, would call First Amendment rights. Um, so as a kid, I had a tangible understanding. Now, it, it's not what uh, people my age in the United States would have expect, uh, experienced, although there were all kinds of phenomenally important, very influential social changes going on in, in the United States. And arguably, what's really interesting is that in the United States, we needed both top-down and bottom-up pressures in order to have civil rights. Um, but what I witnessed in Canada or Quebec was what can happen when, when top-down change is um, not only sort of blind to the needs of those that are going to be affected, but actually willfully uh, contemptuous of them. So, so I, I, I learned a lot about politics and I, I developed an understanding of, of federal systems growing up in, in Quebec. And that's sort of a, in my interest in politics, early interest. My interest in history come from the fact that I, um, that, that my uh, family uh, experienced the Holocaust and uh, my uh, father was born in Bucharest, Romania in 1936. He survived a pogrom in his neighborhood. His um, uncle died in Auschwitz. His uh, two of his uh, cousins died uh, in Auschwitz. Uh, a third cousin survived moved to the United States and um, I got to know him. I was very fortunate in that. And he was like, since my father was an only child, he was like my father's brother. Mm -hmm. So um, as a child, uh, I was fascinated by how international events can affect families and personal lives. And one of the, one of the ways that I try to connect students to history is I, and also a way for me be intellectually connected to my students as I ask them about how their personal histories um, have overlapped with world history. And I said, mm. well, what is the first world history event, world historical event you remember? Right. Um, because I think the personal history, which has an, an importance all about it by itself, 
can sometimes interact with world history and often in tumultuous moments does. And it's fascinating for individuals to think about that. And, and, and I learned the importance of history by listening to my um, grandfather uh, who emigrated to Canada after World War II, talk to me about the old country. And, and there was with him a process. It took, it took decades for him to really want to talk to me about um, the war. Um, I was, um, I was, and still am a big television watcher, though now I watch things that stream. Sure. But when I was a kid, uh, I was shaped by two television programs in a big way. One was called Roots, hmm. uh, yes. which wasn't my family's story, but that's, there is a general, um, there's a, a general applicability of Roots in that, and it is a reminder of the importance of who came before us and, and who we are. Of course, for America, it's, it's, it's about the original sin in this country, but, but for outsiders, at that point, I considered myself an outsider. It was also about the importance of uh, who we are today is a, is a function of who we were. So I wanted to know more about my family. And so Roots, um, I was, I don't know, 12 years old at the time or something like that. Roots uh, got me interested in, in oral history. And my first oral histories were with my relatives. Uh. Um, and the other um, television show that had a, a, a major impact on me was, the ho was Holocaust which was the first depiction uh, of, of the Holocaust um, for a mass audience. In fact, I believe it was so powerful that it was translated into German and hmm. it was the first sort of mass media presentation of the Holocaust that West Germany had seen, wow. West Germans had seen. So yeah, anyway, I don't know this show. That's interesting. I've never heard. Of yeah. course, like everything else, it was with Meryl Streep. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, Meryl, Meryl Streep is the... Um, is the most omnipresent um, uh, character in our popular culture and has been since the 1970s. Anyway, oh, she's in fact, magnificent yeah. in this, but it's a, it's a remarkable cast. Um, and, and just like Roots, it's telling the story of, um, of families um, mm. in a moment of evil uh, or moments of evil. So anyway, uh, those two uh, lit a fire and... My my first research on his about history was about my own family. My mm. first time I went into an archive was the Evo Institute of Jewish Research in New York when we came to visit my father's cousin Raymond, who had survived Auschwitz. And I, I went to the the Evo Institute was looking up Naftali, our, our name. And uh, there was a debate in my grandfather's mind as to whether we were Ashkenaz or Sephardic. So mm. in any case, that's that's where that's how the interest in history began yeah, and combining the two, the interest in politics and the interest in history has kept me interested in everything ever since. So do you find yourself as a young kid watching the Watergate hearings, uh, not knowing that, it, that so much of the Nixon presidency and Watergate will come to define your career? You've written extensively about Nixon, about Watergate. You were notably, uh, both notably and notable for this discussion, the first federal director of the Richard Nixon Presidential 
library, which is to say not a director that was handpicked by the family to tell the story of Watergate that the Nixon family wanted them to tell, which, of course, figures in your career there. Um, but, you know, we're, we're now at this moment, this this 50th anniversary, which is it, is striking to me because I feel like in so many ways, like we're just we just live with Watergate all the time. And so that even marking it as an anniversary seems a little bit um arbitrary to me. I mean, Watergate occupies a place in our understanding of presidential scandal and abuse of power, unlike any other event, it seems to me, so much that we just tack the word gate onto anything that involves a scandal. Um, so why why do you think, and I'm sure you've thought of this before, even the anniversary, why does Watergate hold such a singular place in our imagination about how we think about, you know, presidents abusing power? Uh, and, and and the kind of, you know, the top-down abuse uh, that we've seen before Watergate and after. Why does this one, like, occupy our attention the way that it does? I think it's because a president was forced from office. Mm. We have to take our, ourselves back to the imperial presidency and how the Cold War, well, actually, the outcome of World War II, uh, Put the United States in an, in, in, in a in a position of a, a power, global power, it never had before, and that meant that the president of the United States had power that no no American had ever had before. And I would argue, because of nuclear weapons, the the president of the United States was the most powerful person in the world. So the fact that that person could be dislodged from power peacefully after being reelected in a landslide is a, a world historical moment. The, the fact that Watergate was the was the proximal cause, and I hope we'll talk about a little bit about why you know Nixon leaves office, but the, yeah. the most famous the cause is Watergate, means that Watergate symbolizes the toppling of an imperial presidency. It's a big, huge deal. And then gates are not Bill Gates, but the but the suffix <laughs> gates is applied to crises when people think, ah, well, they may not have used this high pitched voice. But, <laughs> They're thinking it. Ah, ah. Um, <laughs> although I would prefer to say, ah, um, th- this is going to be as significant right. as Watergate. And that, right. and, that Outcome, and, and, yeah. and, and part of it, you know, let's just, well, let's be candid here. I mean, I think. I'm candid, but let's be really candid, Shane. Sometimes people get lazy, right? And so <laughs> no. They, no, no, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> uh, and for the, uh, the, yeah. the, the viewer, your listeners can't see our expressions, but yes. um, the, the fact of the matter is, it's a little bit of lazy thinking, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. That this is going to be the next gate. When in fact, right. once again, you got to look at the details and circumstances of why it was that something that we now know as Watergate could have toppled a popular, though not loved, which is important, mm-hmm. a popular American commander in chief. And that's what that, that's why it, it recurs. Now, that said, although there was all kinds of interest in 2012 during the 40th anniversary of Watergate, because <clears throat> this is not my first anniversary rodeo. <laughs> um, um, it wasn't like it is now. Uh-huh. 
let's remember who the president of the United States in 2012 was Barack Obama. Right. Um, this was President No Drama Obama, mm-hmm. um, who, for a number of very powerful, in fact, moving reasons, um, racism being most important, most important. Not only was he going to be, <clears throat> um, not only was he going to be uh, completely honest, at, at, which appears to be his personality, but he knew he had to run an absolutely squeaky clean administration because right. there were people who hated him anyway, right? Because of the color of his skin, and so you have the Obama administration, which is scandal free. You can talk about, you know, two political, you know, moments of great tension with Benghazi yeah. and uh, and uh, and the ATF business about uh, guns. Uh, but really, we're not talking about there's no corruption in this. administration. Right. OK, right. so 2012, we're not surrounded by recollections of a corrupt o- Oval Office. Well, you know, we're getting get, what I'm getting to. Sure. Is we, we've just we've just survived a constitutional heart attack. Okay. Now we, now, unfortunately we put in a stent, but we probably need, um, uh, quadruple bypass. <laughs> yes. Multiple bypass. We're not apparently, apparently our, our surgeons or in, our cardiologists are impo- incapable of that. <laughs> All right. But we got a stent in and, um, uh, sorry for perhaps in, in a, no, it's, it's a good metaphor is it, but, but the point is we, we just, so of course, Watergate, uh, it, 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 it's, it's very, it's, it seems like current events to us. Right. So right. that's why this anniversary, it's not because of the five O it's that it's what we're experiencing around us yeah. and time and again in the last, well, and since, since president Trump, former president Trump fired Comey, James Comey, director of the FBI, we have been We've been asking ourselves, is this, is this Watergate? Yeah. Is, is yeah. this? Is this the gate? Yeah. Is this the moment? And, mm. and believe me, I participated in, well, I, I was being asked these questions. And so what time and again, our political class um, and our, you know, and fellow members of the media, and we're asking them, hey, oh my God. And then they would go, and this, what playbook do I use to try to right. figure this out? Right. Well, I think it's it's in our consciousness uh, in a way that it wasn't for the 30, 40th anniversary, let alone the 30th anniversary. I think when I think back on Watergate, too, and I, I'm not by any means like you are an historian of it. I mean, I only know <clears throat> what I've what I've read and what I've kind of thought about and inevitably been comparing to current events. One of the things that strikes me about it is that we tend to remember Watergate, it seems to me, as this kind of this one event of the break in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate building. And there were all of these other scandals attaching to Nixon, uh, some of them flowing from that, some of them not, that in some ways were even more scandalous. I mean, you know, the, the, the breaking into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office, uh, you know, uh, political campaign uh, shenanigans, uh, donations. But we kind of like all just like when we step back, but we think of it as the break in as like there's the break in and then Nixon is forced from office. But it's it's really more complicated than that, isn't it? It's more complicated. And yet and I would argue it's also uh, a lot simpler to understand, mm. because in many ways, 
the Watergate break-in is such a con- the whole story is so convoluted. Yeah, it really but is. Let's, let's let's just get get down to the the essentials here. When you have an imperial presidency, uh, you have to hope that your const- our constitution is strong enough to prevent abuses of power. Mm-hmm. Um, historically, um, uh, human beings have not done well when they've been too powerful. Um, and and we are pretty we're we're quite lucky that in the in the Cold War, we didn't have that many, by the way, that many examples of abusive presidential behavior. Nixon abused his power for cynical reasons and sought to um, sought vengeance against his his assumed enemies, perceived enemies. And he was going to use the power of the presidency to go after them. That philosophy is dangerous mm-hmm. in, in a, in a, in a constitutional republic. So that's, that's the deal here. The, the, the story about Nixon is that Nixon had no personal guardrails when it came to using power. And, and how did he want to abuse power? Well, he wanted, he wanted, he wanted the IRS to audit, which is a nasty business to audit his political enemies, not because they had, stolen anything, not that there was any sort of suspicions that they were hiding income, but because he wanted to hurt them. Um, we have Nixon on also on tape because you can hear him talk about, we're going to go after our enemies. We're going to do this to them. By the way, he always said, because they did it to me, um, <laughs> there was a, a sense. They with drew Nixon, first blood. Yeah. Well, it's a major with Nixon. There was a sense of grievance. A lot of this was perceived grievance. Okay, but so it's IRS, but he also wanted to do to do them damage um, physically. There is a chilling conversation between Bob Haldeman, who was chief of staff, and the president, Nick uh, Richard Nixon, in May of 1971. This is before the Pentagon Papers of that summer, talking about how they've hired goons who are members of the Teamsters Union to go out and break the arms and legs of anti-war demonstrators. The White House has hired goons to, to, uh, to quell dissent. Now, we, we were talking about the First Amendment before. So um, here we have the First Amendment being attacked by a president of the United States and being physically attacked. Mm-hmm. And the president just enjoying it. So, um, so that is the mindset of this man. Um, now there are are things he did because this is the climate he creates. <clears throat> there are things he did, and there are a lot of things that he didn't get done because the people around him stopped him. And one of the one of the parallels I I drew uh, in the first months of the of the Trump era, having listened to Trump in the campaign and having a, a déjà vu of that. Oh my God, this is this is a this is a man without guardrails again in the Oval Office, was the question of to what extent will the people around Trump contain him the way that Nixon's people contained him? And Nixon's people tried to contain him. The problem was that Nixon's people were also flawed. Mm. So uh, his chief of staff was a was a vicious anti-Semite. So when Nixon would rant about Jews, he didn't, there were no guardrails there. 
Right. When the Knicks, when the president of the United States says, I want a list of every Jew, and that's the term he used, every Jew in the federal government, and I want a non-Jew on top because they, you can't trust these people. Haldeman said, I agree with you. <laughs> right. Good idea, boss. We'll get right on that. Yeah. yeah well, and and uh, they slow walked, creating a list of every Jewish American in the federal government, and they didn't fire them. <clears throat> but the president would not be satisfied without a little bit of blood on, on the table. And so <clears throat> they put pressure on a group of Jewish Americans who were in the Bureau of Labor Statistics because they were producing unemployment statistics, which the president felt were phony in order to undermine his reelection bid. This is 1971. <clears throat> they didn't, because of civil service protections, they couldn't fire any of them, but they investigated them. And, and the Nixon Library has a, has a really very painful uh, group of documents, painful because when you read them, you realize, oh my God, is this the United States or is this the 1930s? Mm -hmm. um, because they're talking about ethnics and that was their internal code for Jews because they knew they couldn't write down Jews. Right. So they said, how many ethnics are there in this unit? And so it wasn't just the president, but a bunch of his unit, uh, junior staffers, including a fellow named Frederick Malik, Fred Malik, who were complicit in this horrible um, uh, and illegal and unconstitutional effort uh, to uh, make make things difficult for Jews in the federal government, and uh, and that's Nixon. So so so, but none of that was public. Yeah, public Congress they didn't know any of this. Yeah, and why did they know something? Because fortunately for us, and this is a, um, and I'll discuss what I mean by fortunately, but but you and I understand the world of the national security state, if you will. Right. Nixon had gone even too far for, for the established intelligence and law enforcement community. Um, he had seen the role the FBI had played in political espionage uh, earlier in the 50s, and he assumed what they were doing in the 60s. And when he comes to power, J. Edgar Hoover doesn't want to do that anymore. He's still, uh, the FBI is still running some, um, I don't know if, they, if they're formally illegal, but certainly unconstitutional, um, investigations of dissenters in this country. <clears throat> but, but J. Edgar Hoover doesn't want to play the games. He doesn't want to uh, do the black bag jobs, in other words, breaking and entering, um, um, that the FBI used to do, and the wiretapping. I don't want to do that either. Right. Um, and then the CIA, which used to run operations, we know this from investigations done after Watergate, they used to run their own operations on U.S. soil against American journalists to, to find leakers. Operation Mockingbird, for example. And in 1963, John F. Kennedy, about whom I'm writing currently, John F. Kennedy um, had the CIA... Uh, wiretap two journalists uh, because of some some leaks that uh, or apparent leaks that appeared in the press. It's amazing. So, so the, and the and the CIA doesn't have the right to do this. No, under the National Security Act. So these were illegal, but they were permitted by the president because at that time, if the president used the term national security, they could, in a sense, overcome the Constitution. Their constitutional rights as an American could actually be superseded, believe it or not, in that era by a president who
who was waving the flag of national security. So that was the, the world that Nixon grew up in. Now, what he did was he took it to a level that John F. Kennedy didn't take it. Again, not that John F. Kennedy was blameless, but what Nixon did was he doubled down. And, and that's extremely dangerous. Right. Now, fortunately for the country, uh, the FBI and the CIA, they, 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 they would only go so far for him. I say fortunately because a lot of what I just explained to you, we didn't know at the time. Journalists didn't know at the time. Right. This was this was stuff that came out after he was afterwards, and, and it came up because of the scandal of Nixon. Right. So it meant that that our FBI and the CIA could engage in unconstitutional behavior in the United States without the press and Congress knowing. But uh, because they were good at it, and quote unquote, in other words, they were professional. I'm not saying this is good for the country. It's not at all good for the country. It's not at all good for the Constitution, but they were professional. Nixon, however, wanted to go further than that. And so he set up or had set up um, these um, unorthodox um, uh, intelligence organizations in the White House hiring retirees. And it's those groups that got him into trouble. If it weren't for those groups, we might never have heard about the abuses of power that I, I've just uh, discussed. Yeah, that's the plumbers, right? These are the people who become the, the ones who do yeah. the break-in. It's the, it's, it's, it's the, they, be, they start as the plumbers and then they become the, the creep, they become the committee to re-elects espionage. Group. One of the great unfortunate acronyms in presidential yeah. history, the committee to yeah. re-elect the president. <laughs> so if, if, let's go into it. Let's do a little, little bit of, let's go into the weeds for a moment. Yeah. But it, there, I think it, it matters. One of, uh, one of the ways that intelligence services uh, um, protect secrets and operations is by compartmentalizing information and knowledge. They also uh, try to uh, avoid individuals being involved in too many operations, because if that individual becomes insecure, starts working for a foreign government, for example, you're not just revealing what he or she knows, but about a current operation, but the ones that they worked on before. What the Nixon White House did was that they connected two conspiracies. They connected the plumbers. These are the people that <clears throat> tried to find dirt on Daniel Ellsberg. They're the ones who broke into Daniel Ellsberg. He's, he's the one, he's the whistleblower who released the Pentagon Papers in 1971. They broke into his psychiatrist's office because the CIA, they went to the CIA first. They wanted the CIA to come up with a psychological profile of, of Ellsberg that they could leak to the press because they wanted to undermine him. He was a he, he was becoming, he was lionized in the press, I think for good reason, as a whistleblower. So they wanted to destroy him. And the CIA said, uh, they did something for him, for, for the White House. He said, we're not really supposed to do this on, on, on American citizens. <laughs> but here it is, and it and it wasn't what they wanted. They wanted they wanted dirt on his sexual life and what happened. Okay, right. so you have the plumbers, and they are uh, fortunately for the for the world, they are um, uh, they're the gang that can't shoot straight. They are they are not professional. They screw up the break in. Um, they left the door. I interviewed one of the members of the team for the Nixon Library. Um, they had. They had gone in, uh, uh, in that era, UPS didn't exist, but they had gone in as a delivery service and had delivered a package to 
the psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And in leaving, they left the, the door unlocked to the, to the, the, this is in Beverly Hills. And apparently there was an alleyway. Okay. Yeah. The idea that someone wouldn't notice the door at the end of the day, that the door was unlocked and lock it. I don't know. That never seemed to dawn on them this would happen so what what happens that night they come back they open they turn the door to turn the, the knob and it's locked wow mm -hmm. so instead of saying okay or you know finding a locksmith i mean one of their paid locksmiths they decide to break in now the whole point of this operation was to have a it was a black bag job this was a, a covert entry and 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 exit no one was supposed to know they'd gone inside uh, but these brilliant people broke the door. So immediately, you know, it was going to be a crime scene, right? right? So they break in and then they don't find what they're looking for. And then they said, oh, my goodness. Well, this is going to be investigated by the um, Beverly Hills Police Department. We got to make it look like um, a junkie came in here looking for prescription drugs. <laughs> so they go in and they break open. They break, break open the uh, medicine cabinet. Not a bad cover, yeah. <laughs> and and then they and then they, they put drugs all over. They, this is how they describe it to me. Right. He described it to me. You know, drugs all over the place. And they exit. Well, so they don't find anything. And they make a crime scene. <clears throat> and they report this back to Washington. And uh, the president's um, chief domestic aide, a guy named John Erdman, who should never have been in charge of this in the first place, says, well, wait a moment. This is not what I or I didn't... In Struck them to do this. This is supposed to be covert. Do they understand what covert means? So we have Nixon talking to Ehrlichman a few days later. And Nixon knows that there's a covert operation against a U.S. citizen. But like most of the time in the Cold War, the imperial president doesn't want to know the details. They want to be able to deny it. It's called plausible deniability. So you have all the because Nixon is getting um, an update from Ehrlichman, and you have Ehrlichman saying to him, oh, "We we had this covert operation out in Beverly Hills, but you don't want to know about it, or out in Los Angeles, but you don't want to know about it." And the prison says, "Fine," but then he then Ehrlichman goes on to talk about the campaign to discredit uh, Ellsberg. It is very clear that in the president's mind, he is connecting this covert operation in Los Angeles to Ellsberg. <clears throat> so we, we know the president knew. That, that his people were engaging in criminal activity. It wasn't a, the case of, of um, zealous uh, lieutenants going beyond their writ, their mandate. The president was the puppeteer in the brain. Right. Anyway, when the president puts pressure on his team to get better intelligence on his opponents in the 72 election, Ehrlichman... Uh, actually not involved in the conversation, but Haldeman, the chief of staff, and John Mitchell, who is going to become the chief of the, uh, the uh, re-election campaign chairman, at the point, at point, he's the attorney general. Haldeman and Mitchell sit down in 1971 and say, well, we, who's going to run this? And they decide to choose the same guy who ran the break-in in Beverly Hills, G. Gordon Liddy. So they, at that point, they connect the screw-ups of 71 with the future screw-ups of 1972. Mm -hmm. That's why it's very, you've got to be careful about talking about inevitability in history, but it was, it became highly likely 
that something was going to happen that was going to reveal all of this bad stuff because they reused the same conspiracy against um, first Muskie and then McGovern that they'd used against Ellsberg. Mm-hmm. And um, so this this gang that couldn't shoot straight uh, goes from, you know, a burglar, I mean, basically ruining uh, a psychiatrist's office in Beverly Hills to to running an unsuccessful uh, break in at the Watergate. It's the same, pretty much the same people. And why this is happening is because Richard Nixon is wants to do something that the national security state doesn't want to do. But Nixon's desire uh, for intelligence is insatiable. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, And that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, 
and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. So let's talk about some of the ways that the story of both the story of Watergate, but also the story of Nixon gets captured in the popular imagination, which is largely through film. I mean, I can't think of another president or another sort of period of, of presidential history that's been the subject of so much fascination and films in Hollywood, at least not recent ones. Um, all the president's men is sort of the big one that comes to mind and, and also sort of shapes how we think about Watergate and the undoing of the Nixon presidency as something that was forced by two dogged investigative reporters and a newspaper that, that wouldn't back down, even though that's a huge part of it. But that is one part of the story. It is not the story of, of Watergate. But just talk a little bit about that film and sort of, you know, how much influence it still has over how people understand what happened in that era. Well, that 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 film uh, launched uh, 
uh, you know, a thousand wonderful investigative shifts. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it created a sense of, it in, of empowerment for uh, the fifth estate, for the, for the press, for the media in, the, in this country. Um, and it's, it, it is a, a, a story of, of two dogged reporters, of Woodward and Bernstein. Um, it also gave us some cultural tropes the most famous is actually fictitious, which is follow the money. Actually, that, that, that was never that was, said. That was never said. Um, it was the, it was actually really what, what the, what the invest, the most important investigation involved, uh, following the money that the burglars had, which took you back to the committee to reelect the president. But, um, it gave you one, the sense, um, that, uh, and a powerful sense that, that, uh, you could overcome corruption. Right. That despite the imperial presidency, if you dug hard enough, you could you could find the truth, and and it makes it an actually a standalone product of that era in film, mm-hmm. because most of that era in film is dominated by powerful and somewhat paranoid views yeah. of the conspiracies around us and how you, can, you can't actually undo them. Whether it's the movie The Parallax View or yep. it's Three Days of the Condor, Condor yep. it actually, in the end, uh, we are individuals fighting these dark forces. Right. So all the president's men is the it's the outlier where yeah. the and actually we can actually two people can actually undermine the dark force. And it's kind of the most unrealistic of all of them because it sets up journalists as somehow these the journalists will save us from corruption. It's the same. It's the same idea that persists all through the Trump administration, where they're turning. You know, people who are opposed to the president are looking to journalists, saying, "You're our last hope." It's like we're Obi Wan Kenobi or something. Yes. Well, <laughs> I remember um, Daniel Shore was a uh, was an important journalist at the time for CBS News, and then was I mean might be uh, might be familiar to uh, your audience because he spent his remaining his last years working for N- for NPR, <clears throat> uh, and li- he lived uh, fortunately a long time. Daniel Shore uh, actually told me in an interview for the Library that he spent a, a long time telling um, aspiring journalists uh, not to get too romantic about the Watergate story mm-hmm. because if you're not careful, you're going to look for the big the one big thing. And he said the best journalism, the way to keep the powerful honest is a lot of little things, is the day-to-day cynicism and the missteps um, that they do or they undertake. And if you are just following that, rather than looking for the one big kill, but just the day-to-day monitoring of how they use power or how the wealthy use money, that will make this a, a more secure and healthier society than than just hoping to bring down a president. And he said a lot of people, uh, you know, thought that they had found that thread that if they pulled pulled it long and hard enough, the entire sweater would fall apart. Right. And he's, you know, and and really, Watergate is a once in a generation, or maybe once in a two or three generation story. Daniel Shore was a very thoughtful man said that the downside of the, the the role of journals in Watergate is that it set unreasonable expectations yeah. for what journalism can do against the powerful. 
And Daniel Shore himself, who was the target of Nixon's ire. And didn't he read the didn't he reveal that to himself and to the public at the same time when he's like reading the list of people on the enemies oh, list oh, oh, live oh on CBS and okay. he hits his own name? Okay, you're gonna ind please indulge me. Yeah, if yeah. this is too long, we'll cut it out. But this is just to show you how the uh, the president was not in control. Um, it was not on the same wavelength as the FBI. Okay, so the uh, the White House wants to um, hurt Daniel Shore. Okay, and the way that they like to hurt their enemies, if they if they couldn't, if they had no reason to use the IRS, is that they would find something about their their sex life, about them, and then leak it to other journalists, to friendly journalists. So they sent a message to the FBI saying, investigate Daniel Shore. And the FBI didn't know why. Okay. So no, this is For just what exactly? fantastic. So the FBI thought, well, the White House must want to hire him for a job. <laughs> that Daniel Shore for a job. So they took this as if this was a background security <laughs> which, by the way, meant that they called up friends of Daniel Shore. Your Amazing. friend is being considered for a position of trust in the U.S. government. Could you tell us, you know, this and that? Well, the idea that Daniel Shore would be considered for a position of trust in the Nixon administration was crazy. Amazing. And this got back to Daniel Shore. All right. So Shore finds out the FBI is asking questions of his friends about him. And so Daniel Shore asks the White House. So the White House then, and it was somebody named Pat Buchanan, uh -huh. decides, well, I, I guess what we're going to say is that we were considering him for a job because they had to cover up the fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then the White House announces that they asked the FBI to look into Daniel Shore because they were going to hire him for a job, which, of course, is hilarious. So this is an example that, you know, uh, the, the FBI at the, the FBI was not on the same wavelength, fortunately, as the Nixon White House. And the Nixon White House was was not terribly, thank, thank goodness, terribly professional in the way in which it abused power. I'm saying this, and now I'm going from a, a jocular tone to a really serious one. Mm. What Watergate showed was how fragile our institutions are. And that an even smarter, more malicious president um, and a more a malicious FBI and a malicious CIA could have wreaked havoc, given the dark side of Richard Nixon. Fortunately, um, he's going to get caught. Right. But what if we had a president who was even more Machiavellian than Nixon, even smarter than Nixon, and was surrounded by aides who were better at these games than Although all that president's men in that era, uh, there would have would have I mean, Americans would have suffered. And yeah. and the takeaway from Watergate for for many people, I don't think is correct, which is that the system worked. I think uh, the takeaway from Watergate is how how accident and unforced errors and luck played a role and dogged investigations played a role in bringing down a president.
the system, if, if Nixon had not been taping himself with a voice, with a sound activated system, as opposed to Kennedy and Johnson, who had buttons, they pressed yeah. buttons, so they had their secretaries start the taping system. Nixon had a sound activated system. If he'd not had a sound activated system, I think he would have finished his second term. Wow. Because when John Dean um, gives that powerful testimony, uh, if you look back at, you know, at the, at the, at the response to the, of the American people, yes, Nixon lost support, but a lot of people felt that it was, uh, he said, he said that, and, and that they were likely going to um, believe the president over this disgruntled former lieutenant. Yeah. The tapes that demonstrated that John Dean was telling the truth, but absent those tapes, uh, the president, the president's residual um, respect and authority in the country would have would have gotten him through that. So I, th I think it's the it's the tapes, and then the fact that Nixon, unlike Trump, was an institutionalist, even yeah. though he subverted institutions for his own political gain, he still believed in them, and he wanted to be viewed as a constitutionalist. Trump, Donald Trump never cared about the institutions. He, I'd be surprised if he ever bothered to read the Constitution. And, and as for presidential norms, he thought them a joke. He thought them a sign of weakness. Um, I mean, how many times did Donald Trump ever refer to a president other than himself? Richard Nixon had this sort of dark, secretive side, which led him to do things that were unconstitutionally new or wrong. But he also could be shamed. He could be shamed when people saw the difference between the secret Nixon and the real Nixon. Donald Trump could not be shamed in those terms. Right. But what we had in the Trump era was someone retest the institutions in a way that it had not happened since Watergate. So again, uh, the Watergate story is important, I think, not so much by the convoluted, because of the convoluted way that Richard Nixon ends up losing his job. It's by the extent to which the institutions uh, were, were really not up to the task uh, of removing a president unless the president made unforced errors. And that, that makes me want to ask you to, so given that it's the tapes coming out, really, that I mean, the tapes coming out is ultimately the thing that does Nixon in, right? I mean, and that is the result of a Supreme Court decision that the tapes must be released and the tapes prove that he's been lying. Um, can you imagine Nixon being driven from office absent the reporting of Woodward and Bernstein in the Washington Post? I mean, is that an essential ingredient or would this have probably come about anyway? And I ask that question not to, to minimize the, the quality and the importance of the reporting, but so much of how we remember Watergate is driven by that specific narrative of one thing leading to the other. And it's, it is more complicated than that. Well, uh, Woodward and Bernstein... Uh, certainly put pressure on the political class uh, to take the break-in seriously. Yeah. Um, and, and I would say that their greatest contribution was they laid the foundation for the Senate Watergate hearings, mm. uh, especially what they discovered about um, the Dirty Tricks campaign. Right. Now, they... They're reporting exaggerated the extent of it, but not the importance of it, I think. And um, they're having discovered the story, some of the story of Donald Segretti. Um, 
and the Nixon attempt, Nixon um, White House's attempt to mess with our democracy, uh, I think had a chilling effect on members of Congress. And I think that leads to the Senate Watergate investigation. And the Senate Watergate investigation lays the ground for Dean's testimony, but also for the revelation of the tapes. I don't think you have a revelation of the taping system without the Senate Watergate hearings, and right. you don't really have the Senate Watergate hearings without Woodward and Bernstein. Right. So it's it's not as direct as people think, but uh, you had all of the all of these all of these factors had to come into play. Uh, absent one of them, the story is different. Yeah. And there's one other piece that's forgotten, but is worth re- remembering. Nixon gives tapes without the Supreme Court. And, and, I, and I, I believe that this needs to be remembered because we need as Americans to think about how we've changed. In 1973, when Richard Nixon fires Archibald Cox, who's the special prosecutor, it, sets, it, it creates a firestorm uh, of, of, of opposition. And the firestorm of opposition is not partisan. It's bipartisan revulsion. The idea that a president of the United States can stop an independent investigation of his own misconduct. Mm -hmm. Republicans, as well as Democrats, uh, agitate for an impeachment inquiry. Republicans weren't saying that Nixon had to be impeached, but Republicans supported an inquiry. They did not react by saying witch hunt. Right. Now, perhaps if Trump had fired Mueller, we might have seen a similar moment. And I would argue that 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 some of Trump's uh, more thoughtful advisors were looking to Watergate and were saying, let's not do what Nixon did. But what happens is Nixon in 73 fires Cox over an issue of whether to share eight tapes. There is such a firestorm of opposition that Nixon fears he's going to be impeached. And he decides to do two things. One, to hire another special prosecutor. And two, to hand over the grand jury the very tapes that he'd fired Archibald Cox over. Um, That's Richard Nixon. One of those tapes was the cancer on the presidency conversation with John Dean, which proved that John Dean was telling the truth. Nixon gave that (laughs) to the investigators. And it is that tape that we know from interviews later that Judge Sirica listened to. He was the judge overseeing the grand jury. Listening to that tape, he concluded Nixon was was guilty of conspiracy Mm. and would have to leave office. It's that tape that the new special prosecutor, a man named Leon Jaworski, listened to and realized, oh, my God, the president of the United States has to leave office. Mm -hmm. Nixon is the one who gave the evidence to the investigators that led them to believe he had to leave office. Now, what they understood was that the American political class would not necessarily have him leave office over the cancer on the presidency conversation. But it's that conversation that is handed over to the House Judiciary Committee. And it's the conversations in that packet of conversations, plus what Nixon would reveal himself in early 74, that lays the foundation for the House Judiciary Committee's decision to impeach Nixon in a bipartisan, with bipartisan majorities. This happens before the um, Supreme Court 
um, tapes are released, the, the, the tapes that the Supreme Court demands Nixon release, they're not out before the impeachment votes. So Nixon is impeached on material he gives right. to the investigators. Now, in Trump world, they decide, I think the president decided, to give nothing. And they tested the proposition that you could survive an impeachment if you gave nothing because Nixon gave them the noose. Right. And it turns out that our political culture will permit a president to completely stonewall an impeachment. Richard Nixon didn't think that was possible. Right. Donald Trump tested the theory and it turned out to be true. So what's, that's why I'm, I think that the Watergate period is, is very useful, unfortunately, for showing the weaknesses in our system. Nixon actually helped his own impeachment. And we just witnessed what happens when a president decides not to play ball. Um, uh, he comes out, well, he doesn't have to resign. And there are other movies, I think, too, that even, and that's a, it's such an important part of the Watergate story that so often gets obscured when we tell it largely as a story of, you know, the fourth estate forcing someone from office. And we forget, too, the bipartisan uh, uh, <clears throat> will that was in play here. I mean, Elizabeth Drew, in her great book, Washington Journal, captures a lot of that and how it was bipartisan. But I think about movies like Oliver Stone's Nixon or Frost Nixon uh, or even The Final Days, which was this great TV movie with Lane Smith as Richard Nixon, which is really about Watergate, but from his perspective. You know, we kind of tell it as this story now and understand it as a story of this, you know, deeply flawed man who was haunted by his own demons and his own insecurities and his own lust for power. But ultimately, it does come through in some of these other tellings more subtly, just as you're saying it. This was somebody who did fundamentally at the end of the day believe in institutions, even as he was seeking to corrupt them <laughs> and did, you know, that, that, that kind of that 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 level of I don't know if you want to call it healthy respect for them, uh, which is something that clearly Donald Trump does not have, is kind of the ultimate guardrail in some ways that keeps the system from going completely over the cliff. Uh, yeah, I, I well, I mean, I, I, I believe, and it's perhaps because I just listened to too many Nixon tapes and I've, I've read too many documents, but I, I, I think the depravity of the President Nixon's view of power uh, is something that is insurmountable. But I do, I do understand what people, by his most thoughtful advisors, people like Leonard Garment, who was a counselor to the president see something Shakespearean in, in Nixon. I, I understand why they see that. I, it, it's just hard to get past right. the meanness. I mean, you know, in the summer of 1972, Nixon talked with his chief of staff about arresting Vietnam veterans who were against the war on trumped up charges so that he could have a massive um, amnesty. Uh, because he wanted to find a way to pardon the burglars. And he knew that if he pardoned the burglars, there'd be, you know, political firestorm, political opposition. So he thought, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pardon people on both sides. Let's get a bunch of lefties, put them in jail, right. and then we'll pardon everybody. Arrest now, them so we can pardon them. The depravity, I mean, just, just think about that. And it's scary because the president has the power to do that. That he still has to work with the FBI, and the FBI has to be 
complicit in this. But the idea that the president came up with this idea, this was not some bad idea that somebody said to him and then the president was being sort of non-confrontational and said, yes, 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 and then forgot about it. It was his idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, that I think some of these movies that humanize Nixon, mm-hmm. I mean, he was human, but that, that seek to, to, to make this almost tragic are missing some of the, of the story. I mean, I, Frank Langella is a great actor. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever the other elements of his, of his uh, personality there might be. And, and when, when he's acting, there's a greatness. And he made a fascinating Nixon. In Frost um, Nixon, yeah. In Frost Nixon. And I, I was actually there. I, I, I watched the premiere of Frost Nixon with, with Nixon's uh, nephew. Um, and, uh, who, and Langella came over or he, the nephew came over to Langella and, and Langella said, I, I hope I, I got Nixon. I did. And, uh, and please tell the daughters that I really tried to be true to Nixon. And I think Langella's effort to find the layers of Nixon, uh, was powerful. The problem with Frost Nixon was that it gave the impression that Nixon had apologized that. Thanks mm. to David Frost's uh, efforts, Nixon the apologized. Crusading journalist again, yeah. Well, I interviewed Frost for the Nixon Library, who told me about the factual errors in this, and 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 the and the fact of the matter is that this was a romantic view mm-hmm. of how this happened, and Richard Nixon never apologized for his abuses of power, never. What he apologized for was mishandling the political management of the break-in right. and the arrests. And, and, and that's what he, he apologized for, dragging everybody through his mismanagement of a con- criminal conspiracy. <laughs> he did not apologize for the criminal conspiracy. Right. And he didn't apologize for the abuse of power that preceded the conspiracy. One of the consequences of the pardon of Gerald Ford's pardon was, I believe, the American people never got to see a list of all of Nixon's crimes. Yeah. And although the impeachment committee did a heck of a job, I mean, it was a bipartisan committee. By the way, the staff was bipartisan. They didn't have a majority of staff and a minority staff. Hillary Rodham was part of a bipartisan uh, staff. that included Republican William Well, later governor of um, the state of, or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And, but though they did great work and, and minds were changed on that committee and Southern Democrats who normally would have voted with Nixon uh, and, and Republic, some Republicans, moderate Republicans, and in one case, one conservative Republican, they voted against Nixon. And that's because of the, the spade work they did. The, they laid the foundation for seeing the pattern of corruption. But I don't know if the public really ever saw in one place the the pattern of corruption. And they would have if Nixon had been indicted as a former president. Um, And so I've I've always felt, I've I've, I've shared the view of some that the timing of the pardon was unfortunate for the country. That if Nixon had been indicted and the public had seen the full range of how he had misused power, 
uh, we might have been better protected against a future abusive president. But we'll never know. Uh, can't really run that um, experiment in history. And Frost Nixon, I think, missed missed the boat. And uh, Nixon, it would have been very good for our country if Nixon hadn't had had actually discussed what he did wrong, the way some of the, his lieutenants did. Um, Bud Krogh, who was a, a key manager of the plumbers, he didn't break into anything, but he managed the plumbers. He wrote a, a beautiful book called Integrity. It's a very short but beautiful book about where he talks about what he did wrong yeah. and how he violated his oath to the Constitution and how he undermined our country and why he did it and why he was wrong. Nixon never did that. It would have been liberating for this country for an imperial president to have so admitted uh, his misdeeds. And he didn't. And I'm afraid Frost Nixon romanticizes something that didn't happen. So do we misremember Watergate? Uh, well, if we if we remember it as, as a moment when the system worked, we're misremembering it. Yeah. Um, uh, if we remember it only as a moment uh, when the fourth estate, I said fifth before, I should fourth, before, when the fourth estate um, uh, brought down a criminal president, we're misremembering it. Fourth estate is very important to the, to, the, to the sequence of events, but it didn't do it by itself. Um, if we think this is a moment when, when Congress brings down a president, um, there, I think there is more truth to that. But we actually don't usually talk about the role of Congress. We talk about the Senate Watergate hearings, uh, but we don't ask ourselves, wait a second, there were these hearings, but yet there was no impeachment process. Right. The, the leaders of the Democratic Party did not want an impeachment process against Nixon. They, there were Democrats who wanted to impeach Nixon. They were quite vocal about it. Um, but in the summer of 73, despite the Senate Watergate hearings, the leaders, including Teddy Kennedy, they didn't want to impeach Nixon. He's a, he was a very popular president. It wasn't going to go anywhere, even though the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress. It was the Saturday Night Massacre that pushed everybody over the edge. So, so if we see this as, as the story of Congress bringing down a president, it's a little more complicated. Than that. Yeah. So I think the nuances in the story um, are important to understanding why our institutions are fragile. That's the takeaway I wish people would have, which is that we have a wonderful constitution, but it was designed in an era when there weren't any political parties, when the president did not have allies in Congress that were devoted to him as the leader of a party as opposed to head of state. And I think they took us a, a, a too romantic view of, uh, of, of possible tyrants. They, they set up a system so that no one um, uh, body, no one organization, whether well, no one branch would be too powerful. But, but in giving, for example, the president pardon power, they hadn't thought about the possibility the, the president would pardon people who were involved in a criminal conspiracy which allowed him to abuse power. So there were, there are these gray areas and some flaws in our constitution that mean that we're not as protected as we ought to be from an imperial president. That's what I think Watergate should have shown us, but I'm not sure everybody got that lesson. Well, I'm, I don't think we've learned it yet, which actually is, you know, is in, in the minutes we have, time left we have here to talk, gets us to this new article you've written for the Atlantic about 
the role that presidential libraries, which you know something about, having been the first federal director uh, of the Nixon Library, um, this this new, uh, essentially this change that the National Archives and Records Administration wants to make, as I understand it, with respect to the George W. Bush Library, where they would essentially cede much of the, I think of it as like the editorial decision making on how to construct exhibits and tell stories, which the record or national archives and what you try to do with the Nixon administration is uh, Nixon library is to do it in an objective, very historical way that doesn't show favor, you know, to uh, any particular president doesn't try to uh, truly misremember the past by in some cases, just obfuscating it as the Nixon library had done with the Watergate exhibit before you took over. And you write a pretty alarming article in the Atlantic that says, look, if Congress doesn't step in here and stop NARA, the Archives and Records Administration, from ceding control back to presidential foundations, then you're going to end up with a library, potentially, for George W. Bush, that uh, says nothing about Katrina, says nothing about the disastrous decision to invade Iraq, that sort of paints everything in these kind of glowing tones. And of course, then uh, portends to an eventual Donald J. Trump library, uh, in which we might have the January 6th attack on the Capitol, presently the subject of congressional hearings, um, be portrayed as, you know, uh, uh, an act of free speech. And as Donald Trump is portraying it now as a protest that got a little bit out of hand. So talk, talk about this moment where the presidential libraries themselves, these repositories of the literal records of a presidency, are at risk now of becoming the subject of, you know, hagiography and, and arguably of disinformation. We desperately need, I believe, at this time, as many national institutions, respected national institutions as, as we can have. Um, we, as Americans, seem to dislike each other rather intensely at the moment. And, and we don't have many respected national institutions. But we have a few. One is the Smithsonian, and one is the National Archives. Um, there is bipartisan, nonpartisan respect for those institutions. I wrote a piece when I learned that the National Archives was, was moving out of the museum business. It was going to keep its museum in, in Washington, D.C., but it was, it was on the way to relinquishing any role in the museums in the presidential libraries. Uh, there are 13 presidential libraries. There will be a 14th when the Obama Library opens. Um, and I, I believe deeply that um, there's a national service that can be provided by nonpartisan uh, historical uh, exhibits. And I don't just mean bricks and mortar exhibits. I mean web, web exhibits. I think about all the, the, the high school students that are doing their history day projects and the, and the AP history and, and regular history classes and the social studies students and the civics students who are reaching for information and their teachers are looking for information. And if you have a national institution that's respected and professional, uh, it can provide um, bias-free data. And we're desperate now to combine, to have a national database instead of having our our uh, siloed data sets, which really define the Trump era. So it, it seemed to me tragic that at this point in time, it is especially awful if the National Archives removes itself. Now, there is a whole backstory, and if people would like to read my piece, uh, 
they'll get a lot of that backstory. Yeah, but and we'll link to it in the short, show notes. Yeah. In in short in in short in, in short, um, when presidential private presidential foundations talk about legacy, they always mean positive stuff. When nonpartisan folks talk about legacy, they mean everything. So we were just talking about Watergate. So Nixon has, you know, Nixon has a has positive achievements, opening to China, uh, the fact that he worked with Congress to establish the first and really powerful environmental protection, changing our country's uh, uh, terrible policy towards um, First Peoples, uh, Native Americans. Um, there are a number of, of positive achievements of the Nixon administration, but there's also a negative legacy, which is all, all of that abusive power that we, all of those abuses of power we discussed. So the legacy is complex. Presidential foundations don't want it to be complex. They want it simple and they want it as positive as possible. The National Archives, when it oversees a museum, has a veto power over what's in the exhibits. The, the, the Congress, the United States does not give money to the National Archives to build exhibits. So those exhibits, with few few exceptions, are built and paid for by the foundations. But the but the federal government is there as a critic and editor. And over time, the foundations, as the president passes on and that that generation of, of lieutenants moves on, dies, or becomes less interested. The, the library's museum becomes closer and closer to it, the complex legacy as opposed to the simple one. That process happens not because presidential families are all that keen to see it happen, but because you have the federal government consistently and professionals on the ground consistently pushing in that direction. But it means you have to expend energy and it means you have to be willing to push back against powerful presidential families. Not everybody wants to do that. And, the, and I think the National Archives got tired of it. And I think they shouldn't be tired of it because that's part of their job. And they want to get out of it. Now, what is going to surprise some of your listeners is the person who really made this possible was Barack Obama. Barack Obama, for reasons uh, best described by Barack Obama, decided he did not like the presidential library model he did not want the National Archives to be critiquing his museum's exhibits, and he made his museum private. He said, we're not going to have a presidential library like the other libraries. We're going to have a private one in Chicago. We're going to leave all the documents and, and the, you know, what, you know, imagine the size of the electronic records for the Obama administration. They're going to never, they're going to be in Washington. By the way, this decision that President Obama or his foundation made was made late because the National Archives had already spent our money to move all that stuff to Chicago. It was already moved to Chicago wow. when the president changed his mind. So there's been a lot of money wasted uh, on this. But anyway, what President Obama did, and again, for his own reasons, was he laid the groundwork for the Trump Library and for the, the current, the deal with the George W. Bush Library. By saying to the National Archives, you're playing no role whatsoever in the public history of my administration, he opened the door to removing that useful check on our more controversial presidencies. Yeah. And so the George W. Bush people saw what Obama did and said, me too, me too. Let us leave, you know, freedom, freedom. And they forced the National Archives, um, uh, pressed them to do a terrible deal. And, and you know that the that 
when President Trump stops wanting to be president again, when he stops wanting to be the Grover Cleveland of the 21st century, his family's finally going to start thinking about legacy. Right. Uh, and then they're going to say, oh, we want the Obama model. Right. We're, we're going we're gonna to have the, you know, we're, we're going to make January 6th out to be a, a popular rebellion against a corrupt Congress. Um, and I just wrote a piece saying, stop. We, there, it's unfortunate that, that President Obama did what he did. We, we can't reverse that. But let's not, let's stop this. Let's not make this the future of the library system. And I'm still somewhat hopeful we can stop it. Do you think in, that in, in the hearings that we've seen so far around January 6th, that the story of what that day was really about is breaking through to people? I mean, it is a bipartisan event insofar as I guess Liz Cheney maybe is one of the few Republicans willing to, you know, honestly and truthfully describe the events is out there speaking as the co-chair of this committee. But do we have an opportunity here the way we did with Watergate to sort of to break through to people in an apolitical way and say we need to talk openly and honestly about a president who abused his authorities? It's going to be very hard for me to talk about this without um, tearing up a little bit. Mm. because um, I find it very hard to accept that the scenes of January 6th did not leave to, lead to national revulsion against Trump. Now, the first time I felt this was after Charlottesville. Uh, right. And we started this conversation by my talking about how I got interested in history. And seeing those white boys with um, lanterns in a city, well, in any city in this country would make me sad, but I used to live in Charlottesville. I, I, I couldn't believe that this was America. Now, I'm not naive. I know the history of the KKK, but I also um, have, have sort of uh, taken solace in Martin Luther King and Barack Obama's discussions about how our, our, our country, you know, the, the arc of our history tends towards justice. And and what happened in Charlottesville was a complete reversal. Right. January 6th should have led to what happened in 1973 when Nixon uh, fired Cox. There should have been a moment of national revulsion and fear. And oh my God, what, 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 what has our leader, leader wrought? And it should have led to a consensus, a bipartisan consensus, as was the case in set late 73 and 74, that this man needed to be investigated. And that consensus lasted three days, maybe four days. Right. Now, part of what happens in 73 is it happens outside of Washington. It's the American people are reacting. There was revulsion outside of Washington, but it was not as deep and as widespread, more importantly, as we needed as, uh, We needed as a country to, to be in a healthier state now. I don't know what has happened to us that January 6th didn't make us all sick to our stomach. Every American, every citizen of this country should have been so angry at those that mob for messing with what generations of Americans have worked so hard to put together. Yeah. And 
one would be naive to say that there was a national revulsion. The fact that we need uh, prime time television to break through something that, by the way, was covered on all the networks back then, back in January 6th. It's covered a lot. Worries yeah. me. Breakthrough? Breakthrough what? Yeah. So I think we have a, a generational challenge that 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 is that isn't just associated with Trump. Trump's Trump will come and go, um, but what's happened to us? What wh one of the one of the uh, the really bright lights of the Watergate story is that Americans changed their mind about a president. We we all talk about how hard it is, and it is. You uh, people usually vote emotionally. And uh, so there's an emotional attachment and people don't like to admit they're wrong. It's human. We, we're all this way. It's, I'm not the professor telling students. I mean, we're just all like this, okay? Well, Richard Nixon won a huge landslide in 1972. And then by the summer of 74, his public support is 24%. That means millions of Americans who voted for him were disgusted by him. They changed their mind. We didn't see that in the Trump era. In fact, the people who uh, find tr who are favorable towards Trump is higher now than it was in January of 2021. It was about 34%. It's now 42%. Oh my God. So I haven't a clue how one breaks through. I, I don't have a, an answer. I keep saying sociologists that people in the future may tell us. That's, that's why this moment is so scary. I mean that because what more does this man have to do to be understood by most Americans in the terms that Judge Ludig used, a clear and present danger to the United States? What does he have to do? You, you, you have respected conservative jurists you you have respected conservatives let alone liberals and moderates and progressives all recognizing that this man's rhetoric is designed to incite people to violence and to undermine any political outcome other than trump wins or trump allies win that is a recipe for turmoil violence political people. And we have this man. Uh, now, I talked about how Nixon didn't apologize. That's true. But Nixon did admit error. It wasn't enough. I think the country needed more. But he, but he, he didn't go around. He didn't have rallies in 1975 and 76 attacking Gerald Ford and the Justice Department. Right. Um, and we have this man not only attacking the Democrats, which, you know, Republicans do that. Democrats do the same against Republicans. He's attacking Mike Pence. He is attacking the man whose life was in danger, the, his vice president. So we have this malevolent force in this country. And Americans have a history of being pragmatic. Uh, Europeans always viewed Americans as the great pragmatists. 
Um, and in many ways, um, pragmatism was the American ideology. And we're not very pragmatic at the moment. Uh, we, there's a percentage of this country that is in, that it, is it, that is in a th enthrall, enthralled with this malevolent force. And I don't know how you break the fever to mix metaphors. I would have thought, I thought COVID would do it. I thought that the mishandling of COVID and the president's mixed messages about COVID and then his, his um, strongman performance at Walter Reed, where he put the lives of his Secret Service uh, agents at risk, that that might have been enough. But that wasn't enough. And January 6th wasn't enough. I don't know what enough would be. Right. But there's something going on in our civil society, which is very troubling. And I think it's not a historical. I think one has to go back to the 19th century and the and the and the way we we dealt with each other in the 1850s to find a, a similar dysfunction in our polity. Well, that is not a helpful note to end on, Tim. Um, well, I want to end on a hopeful note. I just think we 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 have to get through the baby boomer generation. Mm. Um, two things have happened. One is the unresolved um, political civil war over Vietnam, um, and the other is uh, the unresolved consequences of the of globalization and free trade in the 90s. And I say this as, uh, as someone who, who thought free trade was in the interests of, of countries. I still believe it is, but it has a consequence and we have not dealt with it as a people. You, you have to move. You have to be willing to move. When, when free trade was presented to the American people um, in the 90s uh, and early 2000s, people were not saying, but you can't stay in upstate New York or you, you can't really stay in, in Appalachia. You're going to have to move. Um, there will be jobs for you, but you, you can't stay. Well, it turns out, and it shouldn't be surprising because it's also true in Europe. I mean, it's true around the world. People don't like to move. They want to, Many people would like to stay where, they, where they're born, where their parents are, where their siblings are. And they, they saw their father have a job or and in some cases their mother, and they expect the same. Well, the shift in the world economy in the 90s has made that a much more difficult proposition. And that has deepened the longstanding tensions between, the, between rural America and urban America, because it's rural America that has largely been affected by this, because there are still jobs in cities. And, and we just, we haven't worked through this. My optimism comes from the fact that um, younger, the younger my students um, are more flexible than their parents and their grandparents. And we may see that they're more willing to be mobile. And we may see that technology will allow them to do work without moving. As the Zoom era, the Zoomers learned in the pandemic, you don't have to move to do work. In fact, a lot of companies are now trying to figure out how much in office work, how much office work do we need to have? Right. So it is possible that a, a culturation of the, of the 
younger generation, the, the upcoming generation, plus technology, will uh, help bring uh, help uh, dissolve some of these barriers that make us intransigently um, um, angry in this country. Mm. I I think see that as our hope. Um, but it but it means we have to figure out how to get through the next 15 years. Um, and and I, you know, I, I think Americans find solutions. And my, my study of this country, I mean, primarily I study the modern era. I don't study the 1850s. I know something about it because, you know, I, I studied American history. But but I've studied basically the modern era and I see us finding work throughs and workarounds. I mean, who imagined that the U.S. would innovate as it did in the 30s uh, with regard to the Depression? Who would have imagined the U.S. would have innovated with regard to, to building the largest military the U.S. had ever had in the 1940s? Keep in mind, the United States had, a t compared to other great powers, had a tiny army. It had a major navy, but it had a tiny army. It built what it needed to build in the 1940s. Who could have imagined that a country that largely tried to stay away from other people's problems would create this diplomatic power and capability in the 40s and 50s? Um, and then who would have imagined that Americans who didn't like to travel much would, would decide to go abroad in the Peace Corps and share the benefits of, uh, of, of American education and technology? So, no, you wouldn't have imagined that. But it happened. Um, so the, the, the innate pragmatism of Americans and this, this youthful promise is, I think, going to allow us to start liking each other more. It's just the next, the next couple of uh, the next few presidential cycles are going to be hard. And and I'm a historian. I'm really much better at looking in the rearview mirror than looking ahead. So yeah. I'm not going to make predictions. Well, our very last question on this show, the tradition always is that I reach into the chatter box, which you oh. see right here, and I pull out a previously written question at random. Oh which hopefully it'll be a hopeful question too, because that was a wonderfully optimistic and actually very encouraging note to end on. Uh, and and I, I must say, I agree with you not to pick on my parents' generation, but I do think we have to get through the boomer generation. Total subject of another different podcast, much love for all of my boomers out there, but it is time to pass the torch and we are still dealing with a lot of residual shit <laughs> from, from, from you guys' generation. Um, so the question for you here is, ah, oh, this is a very good one for you, particularly as an historian and an historian of the national security state. Name one dead political or national security related leader from any era that we could really use right now. If you could reanimate the corpse of a former leader and bring him or her back. Um, Franklin Roosevelt was wonderful. He was a, oh my God. How lucky was this country to have this self-confident magician and uh, master of improvisation at the helm during the Great Depression? But I don't think Franklin Roosevelt would be as effective now. I think there's so much cultural dislike of patricians that I'm not sure his his tone would be as effective. Right. But... But Truman and Eisenhower could speak to a lot of Americans and put in terms that Americans would connect with. And I want to say understand because that sounds really patronizing, but I mean, the terms that people could connect with as to why this country is part of the world, mm. 
why it needs to be part of the rule. Mm-hmm. And why, even though you're still going to have to worry about your crops and you're going to have to worry about problems in, you know, in, in your town, we are, we are inescapably part of a much broader um, community. And they could make that argument, and they did. And it was a remarkable shift in American international security life. I mean, the, the, the basis for the consensual view that America has to play a role in the world, the basis of that view that lasted until 2017 um, was really people like Truman and Eisenhower. It, it's Truman um, uh, doing it for, for Democrats, and it's Eisenhower doing it for the rest of Americans. I mean, Eisenhower wins in a, in a debate with someone who's making arguments somewhat similar to Donald Trump's, although Robert Taft was much smarter than Donald Trump. But, but that, you know, the Republican Party is the party of an international engagement from Eisenhower until Trump. So it would be nice if we could find um, spokespeople to get us who were, who would be trusted, who would get us back to first principles. Because I, I think that though we can make a mess of the world, we are inescapably part of it. I, I really wish we had uh, someone from that World War II generation who could talk to people about sacrifice and honor and responsibility. Me too. <laughs> but I'm glad that we have you out there talking about those things and articulating them beautifully as you always do and candidly and honestly and compellingly and thank you for doing it here with us this has been a great conversation and uh we're better for hearing it i feel optimistic at the end of this shane it was was my pleasure and um though we uh love having martinis together indeed i want the listeners to know for sure that the optimism that we just talked about is not the product of a gin martini. (laughs) Although I do look forward to our next one. I sure do too. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.